0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I am your host, Natalie Pearson. Migration and architecture have emerged as a new topic of research at a global level. Take migrant worker dormitories in Singapore, for example. These are sites where structural inequities in architecture and legal regulations have had a significant impact on the living conditions of migrant workers, and they hit the headlines in 2020 as sites for the spread of COVID. To talk to us about the relationship between architecture and labour, I am joined by Dr Jennifer Fern, Senior Lecturer in Architecture and Postgraduate Director at the University of Sydney. Her research addresses asylum seekers and refugees, forced displacement, and migration in the built environment of the Asia-Pacific region. Most recently, she was a visiting research fellow at the Institute of Advanced Studies at University College London in 2021. Jennifer, welcome.
0: Thanks for having me, Natalie. It's great to be
1: here. So housing is already quite an interesting issue in Singapore, with the vast majority of Singaporeans actually living in public housing. But you're taking a particular focus on migrant worker dormitories. What is it about these sites, these buildings that first caught your attention as a scholar of architecture?
0: It's a great question. And I think, you know, uh, Singapore as a city state in Southeast Asia has always maintained a very particular position, right? It has a non-aligned foreign policy policy. It's friends with all of its Western democracies and most of its citizens, as you've mentioned, live in HDB, housing estates, right? So these are intended really for Singaporean citizens. But what's interesting is that the great growth that Singapore is known for, its green strategies for building and for the built environment, its eco-friendly strategies for city living, I think are underscored by the fact that these migrant dormitories, in particular these migrant workers, are the people who actually power and make Singapore such a high-powered place to live in. And they're often forgotten, if you will. Um, I think in discourse and probably also in the study of architecture, most uh, scholars in my field, they're more probably interested in Marina Bay Sands or the, you know, a fancy green hotel that are five stars. And um, what people forget is that these were made by other people, right? That these skyscrapers and these office buildings um, are, are powered by by human labor. And that labor comes from overseas into Singapore
1: yeah exactly so can you describe what these dorms are like where are they located who lives there and what do the buildings look like
0: the dormitories are really an interesting type so the ones that i have written about uh, in a recent uh, article i think that you've looked at called Eflux architecture range in a couple of types so for example there are ones that are called pbds these are purpose-built dormitories and these are ones that are actually regulated by the state and also overseen by construction developers. So those make up the majority of these building types. There are also uh, privately owned ones, worker dormitories that you see that are also developed by particular construction companies to house their own particular workers. And then there's also a mix, right? There's also housing that's been converted for the sake of these construction or maritime workers uh, to work in Singapore. They're really interesting buildings. Uh, They're also rather generic at a particular level. So I think if you were to look at one from, say, the street, you would just see this kind of prefabricated building of a bunch of rooms, you know, in a row. And that building would have a bunch of stacked floors, one room after another, after another, and multiple wings, you know, coming out of one part of the building. So in a way, these kind of prefabricated systems are a kind of cheap, effective way for construction companies to build these buildings more quickly and more efficiently. But in a way you know the other irony of that is that the buildings are not really suited for the tropical climates that they are made for, right. So we have this tension I think between the kind of efficacy of the state and the efficacy of this construction industry at odds with, I think, what could be more humane living conditions. So with inside, I'd say, one of these rooms, there could be up to, say, six to 12 men sharing one bedroom without any air conditioning and maybe one ceiling fan. That's a lot of bodies in one space.
1: That's right. And one of the things that struck me in that article you've mentioned in EFLUX, Climatic Privilege and Transnational Labour in Singapore, and I do recommend it, is that the buildings look... To me, they look sort of benign from the outside. In fact, some of them are quite cheery. They're painted in these nice bright blue colours. But as you say, the density inside and the sort of minimal regulations in terms of how many bodies can be fitted into those dormitories strike me as quite malevolent, actually. So it's sort of presenting as one thing and then quite a different thing
0: on the inside. Yes, I would, I would agree with that because I think um... – once you see how they're advertised online, and I think this is also an interesting contradiction of that building that has those bright colors on the outside, but many of the living conditions are rather poor. So once you see and you can go online to any of these kinds of you know forums where that real estate is being advertised as a room per week, uh, and many workers will advertise their room to other workers who are coming to you know, find jobs in Singapore temporarily you see the conditions of which they're actually kept in. And it's rather shocking because, you know, there's mold, there's you know, infestations, there's uh, unsanitary toilets. And what's interesting is that in the legal regulations behind these buildings, there are no minimal standards that are actually set for these migrant workers meaning there are only spatial dimensions that are set. So the rooms only have to be of a certain size. They only have to provide a given number of amenities and On the contrary, there are no extras included, right, that being primarily air conditioning.
1: Well, you did mention the private dorms earlier, which built, I believe, to reduce commuting time of the people who live inside them. And on paper they sound, you know, not so bad. They've got ATMs and convenience stores and communal places for recreation, Is it quite different in terms of how they present on paper versus the reality of living in them?
0: I think so, and maybe, you know, I think this is also efforts by the Singaporean state to control this particular population, right? This really is a long history of Singapore going back to the time of Lee Kuan Yew, but, you know, the idea that these dormitories occupy a certain strata of society is really evidenced in the legal regulations. So for example, um, the private dormitories that you've mentioned, Natalie, um, they can have a lot more amenities. So some of them may have a bit of air conditioning or, you know, access to yoga classes or extra, I don't know, you know, benefits or things for the canteen. But you look at how much hourly wages or you know even monthly wages these workers are paid and it's still shocking. So in a way, you know, it's kind of, at least is how I've interpreted it, and I think a few other scholars would agree with me, is that in a way, the, the state as well as these, you know, construction developers are hindering both the mobility of these workers as well as their progression into Singaporean society.
1: Yeah, I think you do a really good job of demonstrating how this architecture, the laws and the migrant labour, how entangled all these issues are and how much they intersect in these sites um, one question I just wanted to ask you, which you mentioned briefly, is about gender. You said men or males, and most of the people who live and work in these dormitories are working in the construction or the maritime sector. So is it all men in the dormitories or are there instances where women might live in these dormitories?
0: I think that's a really great question, Natalie, particularly about yeah the gender differences when it comes to construction, and you, you do see this truly in the in the work of dormitories, they are mainly men. There are very few women, almost by no women, at least that I've kind of uncovered. But I think a lot of the women who do come from uneducated overseas backgrounds to work in Singapore tend to work more in the informal economy, in domestic situations. So they are, you know, live-in maids or nannies, to use lack of a better word, domestic help I think they have a lot in common with the construction workers and the maritime workers because their wages are also considerably very low for the kinds of work and care that they do give for many of these families who live permanently in Singapore. So you don't see a lot of women and you you will not see a lot of minors also working in these two industries specifically. So they are mainly men or married men who have left their families, let's say in Bangladesh or, or India, who've come to seek a better job in Singapore.
1: Right, and they're remitting most of their pay back to India or Bangladesh or their source country.
0: Yeah, that's that's a whole other interesting tangent that I think other scholars have also followed up on, uh, particularly uh, with worker remittances and and basically how this has spatially evoked financial flows between one offshore site and, say, the workers' home countries.
1: Yeah. Okay, so in this article that you've written called Climatic Privilege and Transnational Labour in Singapore, you use a really evocative word to describe architecture. You say that it is complicit in reducing basic living amenities for migrant workers. How can a building be complicit?
0: Oh, it's a really good question because I think people often think and then they think of buildings and architecture and these they are passive agents, right? Buildings are not alive like human beings are. They are not animals. They are not part of this living matter of this planet, But what's interesting is that I think buildings and, of course, the built environment, including the cities we live in, shape how we are as human beings, right? So they shape our growth, our education, our work and professional statuses, um, our trajectories, right? Beyond just us as a kind of biological being. So I say that in a way because I think architecture has enabled maybe as well some of these poor living conditions. And if you were again to look at the kind of entanglements between the Singaporean state, these financial investments and even the construction industry, they're quite complicated because they want the buildings to be enough for the workers, but they don't want to make them too comfortable.
1: So they don't have, in most of them, they don't have air conditioning. And Singapore is a tropical climate, hot and humid all year round. I found it really interesting to think about how the Singapore government has long emphasised productivity and Singapore is the economic powerhouse and cultural powerhouse of Southeast Asia. And yet you think about the impact on productivity of living in a building that doesn't have any air conditioning in that sort of climate, and it's such a disconnect.
0: Oh, yeah. And and I think in a way, you know, what Lee Kuan Yew had said when he called Singapore the society in transition, um, that model of productivity, that model of efficiency was really geared towards Singaporean citizens i think that's a point i do want to make here on the podcast is that what's interesting is i also find that you know migrant labor and i think you know other members of my colleagues who have been part of say the asia pacific migration center you know do a lot of work in this space as well so they can also speak to this but generally i find that you know these benefits these kind of what we think as basic human rights like living in a comfortable space having enough daylight having a a toilet to use at night and privacy is not is not for everybody and I think we have very much first world nations, you know, including Australia, the United States, and now even Singapore, that are propagating working conditions that are not helpful for many people and it's a, it's a shame.
1: Um, and, you know, that is really played out in the fact that most of these dorms are sort of out of public eye. They're in these sort of far-flung places away from central neighbourhoods. Have you managed to get access to any of them to do your research?
0: I would like to go back in and do a more detailed study of some of these spaces, but they are very difficult to access. One, because the construction developers do not want any public attention. There is a way of working with some of the local Singapore advocacy groups. I know some of the worker activist groups that are based in Singapore have gotten access because they are based locally. But again, it takes a lot of, you could say, persistence. One might say to get into some of these spaces, there is a lot of documentation, I think, about them. But I think, you know, what has been more interesting would be to do a comparative study across the different types. Because yes, some of them are far flung, but some of them are in more centralized neighborhoods. I mean, some of the private ones, maybe. But I think there is a general feeling here that most of the you know HTB estates and, and the Singaporean citizens who live in these kind of you know nice nicer areas don't really want the dormitories around. And so you do see this in the uh, URA's legal regulations, where they've actually designated certain zones that these buildings can be placed into. And that, too, is very purposeful.
1: Mm, yeah. Now, um, I mentioned COVID in my intro, which really laid bare the living conditions of these dorms because they became sites for the rapid spread of the virus in 2020 and, and places that the government didn't seem to be able to regulate. And they also became places that were subject to extended lockdowns. Is it fair to say that COVID revealed problems about social inequality in Singapore that had long existed already?
0: Yes, I would definitely agree with that point um, that you've made, is that COVID has not only, I think, highlighted those disparities that were already there, they probably magnified them. And I'll give you an example. I think at the start of 2020, um, I think I did a different piece. This was for another architectural platform called, literally called Platform. And the piece that I was interested in writing for them was also about you know, using these dormitory buildings as as what the Singaporean government calls circuit breakers, right? That they were kind of moments that, you know, the rest of the policy was able to catch up and, and these dormitories were locked down, right, as a result of the COVID policy. Um, but what was interesting is from that particular point, I guess it was like April, May of 2020, when really COVID was starting to spread around the world. the The government was really using the Singaporean government was using other spaces to house some of these migrant workers uh, who were being quarantined from COVID or were close contacts of of a COVID person. And they were using some of the car park spaces, some of the void decks. These are the first floor levels underneath some of these uh, housing structures as places to sleep for these particular workers. Now, imagine for a moment that you had a Singaporean resident or citizen or even an Australian citizen sleeping out in the open because of COVID restrictions. There would be an uproar over that.
1: So they were locked out of their dormitories.
0: Some of them were locked out, some of them were locked in. But you do see, again, I think to highlight more forcefully here, the discrepancies between uh, how the migrant workers were treated when they were being quarantined and say somebody who was just a regular Singaporean citizen. Right? There are similar protocols, but you have a lot of testimonies from a lot of migrant workers that were explaining, well, you know, they weren't allowed outside the rooms. There wasn't any kind of exercise. They were in there for like 23, 24 hours a day. With the same people, their food was often rotten. They weren't given fresh food or fresh water. You know, so, so it was also the, something that I think the Singaporean government, you know, to their credit has also tried to improve uh, in terms of what happened last year versus this year.
1: Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about the fact that these migrant worker dormitories had been home to such a, a spread of COVID. Had prompted the Singaporean government to try and improve living conditions as a result, not not just to minimise COVID, but for the you know the general health and well-being of the people who live there.
0: That did. I think that did happen last. Uh, actually, starting this year, I believe there were improvements that were being made through several ministries. Um, that do control the dormitories to kind of improve some of the living conditions. Now, to what extent, I'm not quite sure yet. I haven't revisited this issue. But I think there have been some indications that they were trying to address that. But what's also interesting is that the dormitories are classified under a number of ministries and agencies. So they're somewhere between labor, uh, environmental agency, urban planning, and defense And so the classification of some of these buildings is also very provocative, because if this were just, you know, a source of, say, commercial labor, right, and this were just to funnel and create these buildings that Singapore is known for, that would be one thing. But the fact that the state, the Singapore state itself, considers these to be border issues, immigration issues, as well as labor and defense issues, I think is very telling.
1: Mm. There's no doubt that migrant workers are the untold part of the Singapore story and I think your work, Thinking with Buildings, is absolutely fascinating to me. Um, This idea that architecture can be complicit and the way that it reveals all these issues relating to power and climate and capital is just fascinating, Jennifer. So, I'm going to wrap up with one last question. As someone working in architecture, as an architecture scholar, what sort of design features and attributes would you like to see in these dorms, or is it more about abolishing them altogether and recognising migrant workers for the contribution that they make as on par with Singaporean citizens?
0: It is a great question you've asked us to end on because I think at the same time, yes, I would lean more towards abolishing these types of living conditions altogether because If these migrant workers are so valued as a source of labor, as a source of input capital for Singapore, why are they not valued as such? Why can they not be given access to the HDB estates? But, you know, this is at odds with the other citizens who currently live in Singapore. So, yeah, it it is a tough answer to have. Ideally, I don't think it is about giving them better conditions. I don't think that's enough. I think in a way, if we are really to think more about models of equity, inclusion, and diversity when it comes to migrant labor, but also when it comes to architectural design, we should be designing for everyone. It should not matter if they are a migrant worker, if they are a student, or if they are a citizen who goes to work in an office. As architects, we have the basic fundamental duty to create humane spaces for everyone. So that really should be the underlying universal agenda.
1: Thank you, Jennifer. That's a great point to end on. And it applies not just in Singapore, but in Australia and elsewhere as well. Thank you so much for joining us at SEAC Stories. It's been really interesting and best of luck with your research going ahead.
0: Great. Thank you for having me,
1: Natalie. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.